We're still going through Philippians. We're in chapter 2 um, in a series on when will I be happy. Chapter 2 is our, is our series on when will I be happy with others. That's what we're looking at uh, today. We're going to finish that up. Next week we're going to start another mini-series, When Will I Be Happy with God? So make sure that uh, you're ready for that. And if you know people that you think might be able to, to benefit from that mini-series, we're going to be doing that in chapter 3, so you can make sure you invite them. So today, though, we're looking at Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you on page 7. But give ear now as I read God's Word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. So as I said, this whole series in Philippians has been about how to be happy. We're trying to listen to what Paul has to say. And Paul isn't necessarily saying, here are the eight steps to being happy. Paul just is happy in this letter. Right? He has been happy, and it's kind of crazy because he's in ridiculous circumstances for somebody as happy as he is. He's in prison. He's awaiting a trial where he's been falsely accused and could face certain death. Uh, but in this letter, he's contagiously happy. Now, we've talked about how we need this because for so many of us, we've given up on happiness as a possibility. You know, we, we just, for, for so many people, we think that happiness, real, lasting, lasting happiness isn't something that we're going to have. It's, it's, not, it's, it's part of a, uh, you know, of, a, of a reality that's not ours because for a lot of us, there are just too many problems, right? There's too much suffering. Um, it seems like, especially with the younger generation, there's been a, an amazing disillusionment that, that happiness just isn't going to happen you know, because if you've been through abuse or if you've been through awful relationships or you know, based on the upbringing, most people by the age of 30 have already given up. You know, happiness is just, it's not something they're going to get. Um, and you get to the point where, with a lot of us, we hear people talk about happiness, and sort of outside we smile, but inside we're grieved because we're thinking, that's not, that's just not for us. That's not for me. And so we're looking at how to be happy with others in chapter 2. And I think sometimes we get this glimmer of hope when somebody seems to care about us. Right? You've had that experience before where it's, you, you begin to tell somebody, what's been going on in your life or some of the deep, dark stuff that you don't usually bring out and you feel like they understand, you feel like they care. 
I mean, we get a glimmer of hope, right? And that leads us to believe that if that's going to last, we need to keep making sure that person cares about us and cares about our problems. And the challenge is that oftentimes that doesn't happen. You know, people may, we have a good conversation, and the next time we talk to them, they act like it never happened. You know, or we might, you know, sort of go 10% into the way, you know, into the, into the depth of what we've dealt with, and they respond well. And then when we want to go a little bit deeper, you know, we find out that they're like, wait, hold on a second, I'm not ready for this, right? And we, we see walls, and we, we feel pushback, or they avoid us. You know, and it's interesting, because what we're seeing here is that any time our happiness is based on the reaction of someone else, we just can't be sure of it. We can't be sure of it. And so in this passage, what we're seeing is going to be a different path. It's the opposite path. We're going to look at Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. These three people, they're highlighted here in ways that show us that the key to being happy in relationships, it's serving. Okay? It's not that other people care about my problems. That's what will make me happy. It's are you going to care enough about others to serve? And so we're going to see this in three points uh, in, the, yeah, in your bulletin on page, uh, page 8. You've got room there to take notes. Um, we're going to look, the three points we're going to look at today is first, we're actually going to get a definition of happiness versus joy. Okay, that's something I haven't done yet as we've done this series. But I'm going to do it today. We're going to talk about a definition of happiness versus joy. Secondly, we're going to see that Timothy served like no other. And then third, Epaphroditus served to the point of death. Okay, and so these are the three points we're going to look at. I'll give them back to you as we come to them. So first, we're going to see a definition of happiness versus joy. Again, happiness has been the theme of this series. It's the theme of this letter. You know, and in the past, I've mentioned joy a couple of times, but I haven't really tackled the issue of why am I talking about happiness and not joy, okay? And if you are relatively new to the church or you're not a Christian, this, the church has done some pretty interesting things in terms of setting happiness and joy against each other. And uh, so I want to deal with that because for us and for this series, my goal, I said this at the beginning, is that you would be consistently, powerfully, and unshakably happy, okay? That's my goal. My goal is that every single one of you will experience that kind of happiness in your life with others, with God, and with yourself. And so I want you to be filled up with happiness to the point that it's spilling out of your life onto people around you. But we have a problem here because in our passage, we've got a bunch of negative emotions that Paul expresses. If you look at verses 27 and 28, we find some really strong emotions that don't seem to fit in with our view of what happiness is okay look at verses 27 and 28 verse 27 paul says that he would have experienced incredible sorrow if epaphroditus were to die okay god had mercy on him and not only him but on me also lest i should have sorrow upon sorrow and so to paul if epaphroditus had died he would have experienced deep abiding sorrow okay what's more than that is that paul describes he says sorrow upon sorrow which means that Paul was dealing with sorrow even before the death of Epaphroditus, right? He says, basically what he's saying is, I'm experiencing a certain measure of sorrow, and if Epaphroditus died, that would have been sorrow upon my sorrow, okay? And so what we see here is that Paul, for all of his joy, for all of his happiness, is also experiencing real sorrow over his circumstances. He is in prison. 
He's been falsely accused. There are people in the city where he is who are using his imprisonment as a way to discredit his ministry. They're saying bad things about him. They're trying to destroy his reputation. He longs to be with, this, with the brothers and sisters in Philippi, and he can't. He longs to preach the gospel, and yet he's confined to prison. And that, for Paul, has actually given him a measure of sorrow that we see in verse 27. And then look at verse 28. In verse 28, he says, I, all the more, I was all the more eager to send Epaphroditus to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Less anxious sounds a lot different than experiencing, you know, anxiety, right? Anxiety, experiencing anxiety sounds a little bit more like, you know, couch time, right? If you're, uh, if you're, if you're meeting with a counselor. But Paul was experiencing anxiety because the Philippians were concerned about the health of Epaphroditus, okay? And the idea here is Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippians to take the gift to Paul, the financial, the food gift to Paul. Um, and they heard that Epaphroditus had taken sick, and they were fretting. They were, you know, they were experiencing anxiety over Epaphroditus' situation. And when Paul knew that that was what they were experiencing, Paul was feeling anxiety for the Philippians. Okay? And so what we have here is Paul dealing with real sorrow about his circumstances, real sorrow about future circumstances, and then real anxiety over not knowing how the church in Philippi is going to respond. Okay? Now, before we talk about any of that stuff, can I just say first, isn't that reassuring? Does that reassure anybody here that the Apostle Paul dealt with sorrow and anxiety? You know, I mean, sometimes we get this picture and, you know, some people I think have even said, Stephen, aren't you conveying an image of Paul that seems distant from reality? You know, as we've been talking about how happy Paul is and what he says, I mean, it's great to see his happiness spill out in this letter. But sometimes if we're not in that happy place, and you read or you, you experience someone who's really happy, it doesn't draw you into happiness, right? Sometimes it further isolates you because you feel like, well, there's this huge gap in between where this person is and where I am, and I'm not going to be able to jump over that gap. I can't get there, right? And so what's amazing here is that Paul is showing us. It's like he's showing his heart. He's showing the other side, like the, re- the reality that Paul is, in fact, dealing with these significant negative emotions, and what that does for me, it draws Paul close. There isn't this huge gap between us and Paul. Paul is just like us. He's dealing with a mixture, a mixture of negative and positive emotions. Okay, and so to me, I think that's just reassuring to see his honesty, to see that he's honest, he's real about these things. It's reassuring for us. But then secondly, the question then becomes, how do we reconcile these things? You know, this is all, again, under this definition of, uh, of, of happiness how do we reconcile if paul was happy as happy as he said he has been up to this point how could he experience anxiety and sorrow i mean aren't those things mutually exclusive what has happened is that the church and again i, I want you to track with me because this is really this is vitally important i'm going to try to redefine some categories for you and so I hope, I hope you can get this but this isn't going to be elementary stuff here but there have been people who have said you know, in a way, Paul, why are you being sad about Epaphroditus' sickness? Why would that add sorrow to you? Why wouldn't you just be excited and rejoice that if he dies, he gets to go and be with the Lord? Right? Do you know people like that? Do you know people who maybe ask you questions like, why are you experiencing negative emotions? Because they feel like you should only experience positive emotions? Um, 
Some people might go to Paul and say, why not let go of your sorrow, Paul, and rejoice in the Lord? Anxiety? Why aren't you trusting in God, Paul? Why aren't you trusting that God's going to take care of the church in Philippi? Why are you experiencing anxiety? That doesn't make sense. And so the question for us is, how do we reconcile these things? Is Paul happy and sorrowful and anxious at the same time? Well, so what's happened in response to this sort of discrepancy here, a lot of people, especially in the church, have sought to try to deal with these conflicting emotions by making a distinction between joy and happiness. Okay? I mean, I'm sure a lot of you, if you've been around the church at all, um, people make this big distinction between joy versus happiness. Let me give you one quote from one author. He says this. I think he, he speaks to what I've heard in lots and lots of different contexts in the church. Many Christians confuse happiness with joy, as I did. The author sort of saying, yeah, I used to do this. I used to be wrong in this way, too, and most people are wrong in this way. Happiness is about a buoyant emotion that results from the momentary plateaus of well-being that characterize our lives. Joy is the bedrock stuff, on the other hand. Joy is a confidence that operates irrespective of our moods. Joy is the certainty that all is well, however we feel. Okay, so happiness is this external, emotional, ups and downs, flighty kind of worldly thing. But joy is this deep-seated, constant, never-changing uh, peace that, that, that never, that, that's, that's, that's spiritual and Christian. Okay? You've, have you heard of that? You've heard this distinction before? Well, the problem is, the problem is that this isn't what joy means. Okay? If you actually look and try to define what does the word joy mean, when Paul uses the word joy, rejoice, hap- what's he talking about? We've got to look it up. We've got to actually study it. And I've been doing this over the last few weeks. I've been doing this ever since I started the series because I knew that at some point enough people were going to say, Stephen, why are you talking about happiness and not joy? Why aren't you talking about joy? That's the thing that we're supposed to be talking about. And so, so here we go. If you look up the word joy in the Bible, guess what it means? Anybody want to guess? It means happy. It means happy. The word means happy. Joy is happiness. Okay, now, I'm not saying that in English we haven't made a distinction, but I'm just talking about the Bible. When the Bible uses the term joy, when it uses the term rejoice, the word in Greek means happy. It means to be in a state of well-being. It means to be, uh, to, to be happy. That's what it is. It's a state of happiness. Um, let me give you some examples. Jesus told the story of a man who was digging and found a treasure hidden in a field. And what Jesus said is that in his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. What's he saying here? If you found a winning lottery ticket in a field... I mean, that's kind of crazy. You just pick it up and go cash it in, I guess. But, I mean, what would you feel if that happened to you, right? You'd feel this amazing joy. I mean, you'd be happy, right? I mean, you'd be excited. Something good happened. Um, joy, let me give you a, a little bit you know, more than a one-word definition. Joy is the good feeling that you get when something good happens to someone or something you care about. Okay? Let me give it to you again. Joy is that good feeling you get when something good happens to someone or something you care about. Okay, that's what joy is. Now, as further proof of this, in the Bible, joy is not only 
the condition of happiness, but it's also neutral. Okay? There's nothing inherently positive, godly, or righteous about the word joy. Okay? There are people who take great joy in evil in the Bible. Okay? The word joy can be used both positively and to describe godly, righteous joy, but then there's also ungodly, unrighteous joy. Okay? Let me give you an example. There's a bunch of them, but Mark chapter 14, verse 11. Okay? This is where Judas goes to the religious leaders to betray Jesus. Okay? They wanted to kill Jesus, but they couldn't because they couldn't capture him. They were afraid of the crowds. And then Judas decides that he's going to betray Jesus. And here's what Mark 14, 11 says. Then Judas, who's one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. That's the word joy. When they heard it, they had joy and promised to give him money. That's the word joy. It's the same word that Paul's using in Philippians. It's the same word that the Bible uses for the word joy. Okay, And so what we're looking at here, this word is it's neutral. It's it's the, it's the good feelings that you get, okay? This is, joy is, it's an emotion, okay? It's an emotion that can be both, that can be either good or evil. What's the point here? Well, that Paul wants you to be emotional, okay? This doesn't mean, I mean, the, the concern here, the legitimate concern about describing joy as an emotion and talking about happiness is that you all get this feeling, because you know these people, right? There's people out there that are kind of like Mary Poppins, you know, um, and they're always just sort of bubbly and they're always super happy and nothing seems to touch them and they're always, untu- you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and you're not that way, right? I'm not that way. And sometimes when we talk about emotions and we talk about happiness, we think, well, the Bible is telling me I have to be like that person and that person's expression of happiness. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. Paul is saying that he wants you to experience happiness in your life. He wants you to experience the good feelings that come when good things happen to people and things that you care about. Okay? So for some of you, it's not going to look bubbly over. For some of you, it's not going to look even incredibly demonstrative. But the people who know you well will know when you're happy and sad, right? And so that's what I'm talking about. So I want to be careful that I'm not saying you've got to be all of a sudden an extrovert. You've got to all of a sudden be this outgoing personality that, you know, bubbles over. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying that he wants you to experience real, genuine happiness in your life. Okay, does that make sense? You understand where we're going here? And so Paul is happy, right? And it's, it's, it's not... You know, one of the problems when we make the distinction between sort of joy and happiness is that we create this opportunity for you to say, oh, well, I'm experiencing joy even though I'm not outwardly happy, right? And we're going to talk about how do we deal with those, the, the mix in a second, but I think we need to be careful because I think what happens a lot of times is that we have this category of where we're really just being rude or mean or angry or bitter, and that's, that's really what we're doing. We're, we're sinning in our bitterness, in our emotional projections and how we act. Um, but we say, yeah, but I know Jesus rose from the dead, so life is good, you know, and, and everything is going to work out, right? And we sort of justify our bitterness. We justify our anger. We justify our sin sometimes by saying, well, yeah, it's okay because it's not the outward emotion that matters. It's really what's deep down inside, okay? What Paul is saying here is that those things should connect, 
okay? The deep abiding sense, we'll talk about where that deep abiding thing comes from, but that that should bubble up over, okay? And it should find some expression in how we treat people, in how we act, and how we feel about life, okay? That's what we're aiming for. One author, um, one of the best books on this whole dynamic is this book called Faithful Feelings. It's called Rethinking Emotion in the New Testament by Matthew Elliott. It's probably, it's the best thing I've read. It's, it's a scholarly work, so it's written, um, but it's not, it's not unaccessible. But um, it does a great job dealing with all the different emotions, joy, peace, love, uh, jealousy, wrath, anger, even the negative emotions, talking about when it's good, when it's bad. And so he says this. He says, joy experienced by Christians was something to be seen by the world, and it drew people to Christ. And it drew people to Christ. So this is what we're aiming for. Now, so that's the definition, okay? That joy is the good feelings that you get when something good happens to someone that you, someone or something that you care about, okay? Now, let's come back to this issue. How do we deal then with the mix of circumstances in our lives, right? How do we deal with the suffering, the awful darkness that has happened to so many of us in the past? How do we deal with the chronic pain and the problems that just don't go away, right? How do we handle the command to be happy, or the example of Paul to be happy in the midst of that? Um, I mean, that's a question, right? I mean, did you feel the angst of that, right? We've got to come up with, I mean, the way that the traditional way to deal with it is like, oh, well, you can have this joy, but then outside, like on the outside, nothing, you know, you don't show it uh, emotionally. I think what we need to see, and what we've seen also even with Paul, Paul is the answer for our question. Paul teaches us this because what Paul experienced was both, he, he experienced both positive and negative emotions at the same time, right? Verses 27 and 28 show that in the midst of Paul's happiness, in the midst of his joy, he was dealing with anxiety and sorrow. There are other places. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you find out there's a place where Paul says, I was so depressed, I wanted to die. Okay? And this is a place where, you know, I, I know how much pain some of you have gone through. I know how the hell that some of you have had to deal with when you go through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, and, and sometimes you feel like, you know what, church doesn't really have a place for me. Like nobody ever talks about how I'm feeling in dealing with this stuff. And I just want to say that Paul understands how you're feeling. If you read the Psalms, right, and you probably already have, right, because that's where you go. The, the psalmists lament and are depressed and experience real anguish of soul as they wrestle with the circumstances of their lives. And so, um, and so, but we need to bring these together. And how do we do that? Well, we need to really understand how our emotions work. Um, and what we see here with Paul is that Paul's emotions, both good and bad, were his honest responses to his good and bad circumstances in life. Okay? Paul's emotions, good and bad, were his honest response to the good and bad circumstances in his life. Okay? And so this means that if you are right now experiencing a mix of good and bad circumstances, then right now you should be experiencing a mix of good and bad emotions. Okay? Or positive and negative emotions, I guess, would be a better. Not good and bad. That is a moral connection to it. Do you know what I'm saying? If you're experiencing good things, then you should have a sense of happiness about those good things. If at the same time you're experiencing some bad things, then you should have a sense of sorrow or, or, or frustration that is commensurate with those experiences. 
Okay. Now, is that freeing? I mean, to me, that's freeing, isn't it? Doesn't that help you? Because it's like now, wait, I've got something now that accounts for the mixture of my life. And Paul here is an example leading us in this. Um, In this book, here's a great description. It's probably the best thing I've read on emotions. Um, uh, This author says, emotions, they're not primitive impulses to be controlled or ignored. Okay, emotions get the bad rap in the church, right? We're afraid of them. We think they're going to lead us astray. Listen to this. They're not, emotions are not primitive impulses to be controlled or ignored, but they're cognitive judgments or construals that tell us about ourselves and our world. Destructive emotions can be changed. Beneficial emotions can be cultivated. Emotions are a crucial part of morality. Emotions can also help us to work efficiently, assist our learning, correct faulty logic, and help us build relationships with others. I mean, I could preach a whole sermon just exegeting that paragraph from this uninspired book, but I'm not going to do that. I mean, there's so much in there, though, that's reflective of how the Bible presents emotion in the big picture. God has emotions. You know, we can't look at all that right now, but, um, but I just think, I mean, that's you know, where it comes down. The good and bad facts of your circumstances are what determine the good and bad feelings and emotions that you have. Okay? And so, now, the reason why Christians have taken on joy and have seen that there's something, in the, that there's something about joy that is lasting, that is deeper, that is even more powerful than the other negative emotions that run at us in life, the reasons why Christians feel this way is because, is because there is a set of facts that produce happiness and joy for Christians that can't be changed. Okay? Now, there's a sense to where all of us have sort of two sets of facts. Okay? Christians and non-Christians. We have some sets of facts, realities, circumstances of life that fluctuate, right? The market fluctuates. If you're invested in the market, your response, your emotions about your finances fluctuates, right? Um, There are people in your life that are unpredictable, and so your emotional response to them will, be, will vary based on how they're treating you, your boss, your work, your productivity, all these things. There's, they, they fit into this set of circumstances where sometimes it's good, you feel good. Sometimes it's bad, you feel bad, right? And we go up and down. Well, then there's the second set of facts for all of us, for everybody, that are just more constant, right? I mean, usually you've got relationships. Most of us have relationships in our life that are more constant, or we have some things, some people in our lives that we can count on. They don't go up and down like that, but they, we sense that they have real love for us, that commitment to us, right, and to our good. And those things provide a stability that sometimes, you know, helps us overcome the dips in the daily emotions, right? All that makes sense. And so for Christians, though, what's amazing and glorious and what becomes transcendent for Christians is that there's this other set of facts that goes even deeper. There's this other set of facts about something that didn't happen last week, but happened 2,000 years ago. (laughs) About something that didn't have anything to do with us, but had something to do with what someone else did, right? There's a set of facts that has to do with not whether or not we are going to accomplish something in the future, but it's a set of facts that's based on what someone else already accomplished in the past. And so there is a certainty 
about these facts of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he came and lived for us, that he came and offered himself for us, that he came and died on a cross to take away our sins and our failures and our lack of accomplishments and even our negative responses to with emotions. I mean, he lived and died for us. And then he rose from the dead. And then he came up from the grave and is now victorious over all of our sin. When you walked in this morning, that was in the bank already, right? When you leave here, that's in the bank. When you respond well this coming week to your situation, to your circumstances, it doesn't change what Jesus did. When you respond negatively to the circumstances in the week that's coming up, it doesn't change what Jesus did. And when you realize this unshakable set of facts, when you realize that, (laughs) here's what's crazy, is that this unshakable set of facts includes something that's not just a bunch of facts, but this same Jesus is now reaching out to you. It's not just facts, but it's a relationship. This one who rose from the dead now reaches out to you and says, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm committed for you to experience blessing and forgiveness and joy and grace. And that commitment is just as certain as the facts of his life, death, and resurrection. When you understand that, that then sits even deeper and more constant than anything else that can happen to you daily, monthly, yearly, over the course of your life. If the rug gets ripped out from under you in any way, there is this set of facts and a relationship with Jesus that tells you a whole bunch of things. It says the future is secure. It says that God is working in your life. It says that the one who matters most loves you the most. And so that, if you understand that, that gives you, that makes you happy. That makes you happy even if the circumstances of life are toppling, okay? I mean, and that's the dynamic. And so it's not that joy isn't happiness. It's not that joy isn't emotional. It's just that if our emotions are based on facts, if our emotions are based on realities of our circumstances, we have a set of circumstances that is infinitely good and isn't ever going to change. And so we have a well of happiness that we can draw from at any moment in our lives. Do you understand that? Are you experiencing that kind of joy? I mean, this is the happiness that enables Paul to write a letter that has been called one of the happiest letters ever written from a prison cell, finding himself in hunger often, knowing that he's about to stand before a judge who could sentence him to death and he's been falsely accused. And so what are you dealing with? What is going on in your life that is causing you to forget about this deeper well? I mean, digging into this well, just lowering the bucket down, sometimes it's as simple as opening up the word and just reading it. This becomes a well for, for you. Singing can do it. I mean, we're all wired differently. We all respond. We all draw from that well of Jesus in different ways, right? For some of us, it's, it's reading books about the Bible. For some of us, it's, it's interacting with people, 
right? It's hearing what God's doing in your life, you know, or, or getting to tell you what's going on in mine, right? For other people, it's just, it's serving. It's being out doing stuff for other people that fills you up, right? I mean, this is what we're aiming for. Like, we all need to understand and identify what is it that helps us tap in to that deeper pool of joy and happiness. What is it that enables us to draw from that? Because that's what Paul wants us to be about. That's how we can bring this, bring this into our lives. And it's not just, you know, Paul, Paul's enough. But my favorite example of this is from the book of Acts. Um, it's from the book of Acts in chapter 5, verses 40 to 42. This was the apostle. This is before Paul became an apostle. The apostles were preaching. They got arrested. They were taken in. They were put before the religious leaders. They heard, they, they sort of gave testimony, then they, they sent them away, and they're deliberating. Well, then the religious leaders invite the apostles back in. They bring them, they invite, it's kind of too kind of word. They drag them back in. And it says this, in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Now, I used to read over these, the, the, the phrase, they beat them, until I saw the passion of the Christ. I mean, this is caning. Okay, this is beating somebody with an inch of their lives. Okay, this isn't just giving somebody a spanking. So they brought them back in. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay, and how did they respond? Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, (laughs) rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. (laughs) what do you do with that what do you do with that they were tortured they were tortured and what they did not only did they delve into this well of of happiness in the midst of their suffering but they actually turned their suffering into a way to get to the happiness because they said, you know what, I am, we are suffering because of the name of Jesus. We're suffering because of what he did for us. And so we are connected to Jesus. We're, we, we were just beat because of him. And so they saw their suffering as a way to draw from the well. And when you can do that, nothing can touch you. When you can do that, your life becomes the most powerful expression of God that I can think of. When even in your suffering, you can realize that your suffering is actually connecting you to Jesus and giving you a chance to give him honor and glory in the midst of it. It Changes everything. We're going to see more about that in chapter 3 because Paul picks that theme up and he goes with it. The apostles let the facts of Jesus' victory conquer the facts of their suffering and it's an invitation for us i mean this is what paul is inviting us to do he's inviting us to be able to overcome the ups and downs with this sense of what the real circumstances the eternal abiding circumstances are and that's what makes us happy even while we are experiencing genuine sorrow and difficulty and 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 and, And like, because if someone dies in your family, if someone dies that you love, like that's, 
you'd be inhuman to be happy about that, right? So I'm not saying that, but I'm saying in the midst of all of your negative circumstances, there are things when you need to be, you know, thinking, you need to have negative emotions. You need to be angry about some things. You need to be jealous about some things. You need to be sorrowful and depressed and anxious about some things that are legitimate things in your life. But in the midst of all that, there's this deeper pool that you draw from that keeps you going. It gives us the strength that we need to face the day. So, now the key to seeing more of this, um, so th- this is all point one, okay? Defining happiness versus joy. I got two more points, but they're short, okay? They're a lot shorter. Because Timothy and Epaphroditus really become examples of this being worked out, okay? And they highlight how we can bring more of this happiness to the surface of our lives. And so let's look at, at Timothy next. Point number two on your outline is Timothy, he served like no other. Okay, Timothy served like no other. To Paul, Timothy was like a son. He was like a son. And, and for us, like, we lose some of the sense of that. Um, but in the first century, when Paul was writing, the, the relation between a father and the son that Paul talks about in verse 22, it's the sense of apprenticeship. You know, that, that fathers would train their sons to take over the family business. Right, Dick talked about this amazingly a few, I guess about a month ago in the Faith and Work series, the idea of the family business. And so what Paul had done was Paul had raised Timothy up. He had poured his life into Timothy. And so Timothy was like a son to him. And, uh, and so what this talks about when Paul speaks about Timothy being like a father and a son, that his proven worth, he served with me in the gospel, you know, this speaks of the process of discipleship. Okay, it's the process of mentoring. It's the process of, of encouraging, of strengthening, supporting, helping, and teaching each other. Okay, that's what Paul was doing for Timothy. And so, and it was to the point where Paul had done this, to the point where verse 20 says that Timothy was like-minded. You know, when it says, I have no one like him, what, what, what Paul is saying, you can translate that phrase also, that, um, that I have no one else who is like-souled. That's what Paul's saying about Timothy, that Timothy had, had gotten Paul and understood Paul and was discipled by Paul to the point where Timothy could actually convey the heart of Paul. You know, and, and really, that's what discipleship is. You know, and that's something that speaks to all of us, right? Because all of us have a responsibility to each other, right? To be discipling each other, to be encouraging each other, to be a family to each other. Um, and so... For you, I mean, I'd, I'd want to ask, like, what are you, what do you have a sense of you being known for? You know, when it comes to your Christianity, what kind of imprint would you want to put on other people? You know, what is it about your, you know, your, your, what you've experienced, the truths that you know? For some of you, it's going to be, you know, a lot of things that you'd want to help somebody else understand. Okay. For others of you, it's that you do certain things that you'd want other people to also do in their lives. And then for others of you, it's, it's sort of like just who you are, like your, your, your experience of God. You want to convey that. You want other people to experience what you experience. You know, in, in all these different ways, we disciple each other. And so the question is, do you have a sense that there's something in you that other people need? Do you reflect God's character, his image, in a way that would help other people? And then the follow-up question is, who are you pouring yourself into? Who are you thinking about? Who are you praying for? Who are you loving and, 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 and discipling? 
you know, it's not always a father-son relationship. Sometimes it's a brother-sister, sister-sister, brother-brother kind of thing going on. But, you know, but, but you get what I'm saying, that we're all called to build each other up. It's about relationships. You know, it's not just about knowledge. Even the knowledge needs a relationship that goes with it, right? Timothy has proven character, right? He's shown that it's real. It's not just that he can parrot Paul's theology. And so when it came time for Paul to send someone to the Philippians. He, he, when Paul wanted, you know, w- wanted one person to go and convey his heart, Timothy's at the top of his list. There was no one like Timothy for Paul. No one else could do this. You know, have you ever been in that kind of an experience where you've needed to send someone to give a message, but not just the, ch- the, the, the words of the message, but to actually convey the emotions with the message or to convey the presence. You know, maybe this happens in business sometimes where you know, if you've got someone that, that you need to deliver a message to your boss or to deliver a message to a coworker or somebody who, who works for you or another director in the company, something like that, where it's, it's very important how the message gets delivered. I mean, for Paul, Paul was with, Paul with Timothy, <laughs> Paul's, Paul's goal was to convey how much he loved and cared for the church in Philippi. And Timothy could do that. You know, I was remembering the old um, Hallmark card commercials, right? Do you remember the old slogan, when you care enough to send the very best, you send a Hallmark card. Timothy was, it was like Paul loved the church in Philippi so much that only Timothy would do. Only Timothy would do. And, and the thing that we see really that jumps off the page at us um, about Timothy is that um, verse 22, the end of verse 22, how is a son with a father... He served with me in the gospel. And so, bottom line, Timothy was a servant. He was a servant. He had concern for them. Um, I have no one like him, verse 20, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And so that's what Paul is aiming at. And I guess in one sense, one author said, this is a great definition of a pastor. You know, um, that Timothy, Paul doesn't say Timothy's a great teacher he doesn't even say Timothy's the, the holy and devout man. He says Timothy will genuinely care about you. You know, and I think that's that needs to be at the top of any list of qualifications for a pastor, but then also for all of us, you know, the, as we disciple each other, the, the, the thing that needs to rise to the top in terms of your attitude toward other people is are you do you care for them? Are you willing to serve them? When you do that, you get at Paul's heart, and when you serve you know happiness. That brings real happiness. And so then this brings us last to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is point three. He served to the point of death. And Epaphroditus is interesting. Um, It's real easy to sort of read through the paragraph on Epaphroditus and kind of go, oh, that's nice. Let's move on. Um, The Philippians sent Epaphroditus to be their representative to Paul. Okay, so Epaphroditus was the one who had this gift that the Philippians were giving to Paul. He brought the gift. And again, I remind you, this was 800 miles that Epaphroditus traveled. Okay, so if we were going to all as a group, you know, take a collection, and uh, there's a church in El Paso, Texas uh, that I know of, we're going to bring that gift to El Paso, Texas to help the folks who are suffering in El Paso, Texas. It would be us leaving the theater um, and walking to El Paso. Okay, that's how far. It's 800 miles. No trains, no planes, no automobiles. Okay? 
800 miles Epaphroditus goes on behalf of the Philippians. And it's interesting because with Epaphroditus, you get this sense that, I mean, obviously, what's driving him? Well, he's got this gift, right? So he's, there's importance there, right? He gets to bear this gift. And then at the end, in El Paso for us, is Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, he gets to deliver this gift. He gets to spend time with Paul. He gets to, you know, he, he gets to be the bearer of this. You know, he's got this role. And what's amazing is that on the way, he takes sick. He gets sick almost to the point where he dies. And instead of giving up, it's like he rallies. You know, he, <laughs> he girds himself and he overcomes the sickness by the grace of God. God somehow heals him and he makes it all the way. And you could imagine Epaphroditus being driven by a desire to want to deliver the gift, right? To want to see Paul. And that that gets him through the suffering of 800 miles of traveling and then also having to go through the sickness, you know, to the point of death. Well, here's what's crazy, is that once he gets there, once he gets there and delivers the gift, he finds out that the church in Philippi is worried because they heard he was sick but didn't know if he was okay. And so what does Epaphroditus do? He turns around and goes back. He gets to El Paso, delivers the gift, and it's like he forsakes his time with Paul. He gives up his opportunity to spend an extended time with Paul and returns so that the Philippian church's needs might be met, so that they wouldn't experience anxiety and sorrow and uncertainty about his condition. I mean, that's amazing. That reminds me of what Jim shared at the beginning. You know, because we're all tempted to say, okay, well, so all right, you're telling me I need to serve. Okay, great. Well, so how much? How much do I have to serve? Is it an hour a week? Is it two hours a week? How much do we have to serve? And that's kind of how we think about it until we come face to face with Jesus. You know, it's all about rules until you see Jesus face to face. And when you see that Jesus, it's not about, it's not about rules. It's about the story. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, didn't just come to earth, but on earth took the lowest form of a human being as a slave and then as a slave he did the worst possible thing he gave up his life and was tortured and died that's the heart that Epaphroditus caught that's the Jesus that Epaphroditus had experienced and that's the Jesus that made Epaphroditus travel 1600 miles at what appears to be the drop of a hat just because he loved the church that much The beat of his heart was, how can I serve? That was the beat of his heart. Not my problems, not my sickness, not my suffering, but what can I do for you, Paul? What can I do for you, church? And it calls us. You know, how are you doing with this? What's the beat of your heart? Have you drawn from the well that enables you to act this way, that enables you to serve and sacrifice this way? I mean, because that's, that's really the biggest issue because, I mean, the challenge for us, again, is that it's not focusing on your problems. It's not trying to get other people to understand your problems, but it's about serving their problems. It's about caring about them. That's the road to make us happy. And the problem to do this, the problem with doing this is that you can't do this if you have real needs. Okay? 
if you have needs, those needs need to be met, but you can't focus on getting your needs met because that's not the answer, right? So now we're in this dilemma, and the only solution is to come to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the solution for this dilemma because in Jesus, he meets your needs. I mean, he is the one who meets your needs. And Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, all of them got that. For each one of them, Jesus was enough for them that gave them the ability then to look out and to serve others. I mean, in one sense, they're ambassadors. They're ambassadors, right? Epaphroditus is the ambassador of the Philippians to Paul, right? Timothy is the ambassador of Paul back to the Philippians, right? We get this sense of people representing others. And in this text, we see the ways that these people reflect not just what's right, but they reflect this picture of Jesus. They show us Jesus, his willing service. I mean, Epaphroditus, you know, shows us the, the attitude of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, his love, his care, his concern for you, for you. As you read about Epaphroditus, we realize that Jesus also came up to the point of death, but God didn't heal him. Jesus went, not, up to, not just up to the point of death, but Jesus was plunged into death and went in willingly so that he could save you. All of these pictures, all of these images, all these descriptions of these three people are pictures of what Jesus has done for you. Are you experiencing that? Do you have a sense of that? Because the last thing that happens here is that once you experience what Jesus has done for you, Jesus then calls you to be that same thing for others. Okay? And it's not that you're serving by yourself. It's that based on what he is working in you, based on what he's done for you, what he does in you, that's how he works through you to others. Okay? God is calling every single one of you to be an ambassador for him. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ. It's as though God is pleading through us. And he says, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Come back to God. Have a relationship with God. And as you are able to experience the love and the care and the concern, that's the face that you give people. You get to the point where God says, I have no one like Rick. I've got no one like Thela. I've got no one like Dana that can convey my heart like they can. There are people in your lives that need to experience Jesus and they're going to experience it through you. That's our call. That's our call. We have this ministry of reconciliation and God is pleading through us. Will you hear that call? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you have served us in Jesus. And I thank you that the church from its earliest days has been, time after time, amazing pictures of what happens when people get gripped by you. When people experience that deep, that deep well that goes right into Jesus. As Jesus flows into them, they do things that are just inexplainable. God, we want to be those same people. and We can't do it without you. 
we want to serve people around us, but if you haven't loved us first, we've got nothing in us to be able to give. And so fill us up. Fill us up. We pray in Jesus' name.